plane crashes, gas explosions, poison waters. People facing the worst moments of their lives all turned to one man who promised to solve their problems. Then they watched his lavish lifestyle with his wife play out on their TVs every week without knowing that the money paying for it all really belonged to them. This week's episode is Tom and Erica Girardi, The Hustler and the Housewife. Up, bump in the night, your heart fills with dread. Probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. I'm gonna kill you. You're in deep with the housewives now. It's Here's what started as a joke. <laughs> I have never been a housewife watcher, and I very I watched this Hulu documentary and thought that Erica Jane was a monster, and that I could not believe that she would flaunt her extravagant wealth. Meanwhile, it was all, you know, the the settlement funds of these folks that had gone undergone terrible things. And uh, I talked to my friend Megan, who's a big housewives fan, and. I said, what do you, I just called and said, what do you think about Erica Jane? And she said, oh, she's my favorite housewife. She's great. I love her music. And then I thought, (laughs) I said, she's a monster. And she goes, just watch it. So Mm -hmm. I binged all the episodes of season 11. So it's my very first foray into housewives was season 11. And (laughs) the whole time I was very going through a lot of emotional Mm -hmm. problems because I liked Erica the most. One might say a roller coaster, which was her first single. Oh, there it is. There it is. Yeah. And then I see in The Hustler and The Housewife these clips of her music, and I think, what? She's delusional. This is terrible music. And then I went and watched the videos, and while the videos are not my style, the songs are not bad. They're Some <laughs> like of they're, them are kind of bops. I mean, it's expensive to be me, despite the irony and the horror of yes. what is going on in the situation. It's a catchy tune. I kind of like... No fucks. No, I figured as much. I bet you would. I bet you'd like that. I'm not surprised. But I'm not, I did not consider myself a housewife person. And I thought, I'm going to just watch this for the show. And I got in deep. I got in deep. It's, there's a reason it's on season 11. And of 53 different franchises. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. That's just season 11, Beverly Hills. There's Atlanta. There's Dallas, which Salt I tried Lake to watch. City, Dallas. You know, I've never seen the Dallas one. I hear yeah. it's not that great. I turned it off about how... I, actually, I, I think I did make it through episode one. One of the ladies on there goes, in Dallas, there are billionaires, and then there are millionaires, and then I'm somewhere below that. And I was like, why am I watching a show about somebody who has <laughs> no I wanna, money? I want to watch the billionaire one. <laughs> I was like, boo, where's, where's Mark like, Cuban's we're, wife? I don't want to watch We're all this. below that, lady. And I was like, then guess what? I can go and sit at a restaurant and watch some idiot from Dallas jack around. I don't need to sit here and give you my ad revenue mm-hmm. and watch this. So yeah, anyhow. But I am uh, looking forward to the next episode, which will have oh, aired yeah. you know, by the time we we go to the next one to see what's now happening. Now shit's getting real on there. Yeah, yeah. It's hitting the fan. I will <laughs> say, I watch. I've seen all of this season of Beverly Hills. I've seen like one or two other seasons, and then I've seen several seasons of New Jersey, which. Shit gets wild on that one, too. <laughs> and there's a whole, there's the whole Teresa and Joe scandal on the New Jersey Correct, yeah. one is is wild. And then 
Was it the Salt Lake City woman who has also yes. just been arrested for a phone scam? It's rampant. There's there's I, a lot we could so. do, and I'm sure there are podcasts out there that are just focused on the white collar crimes committed by people <laughs> that are on Bravo shows. Yeah, it's um, it could fill a book. It could yeah. fill, and it's and there's more stuff coming out every day. Oh yes. so, yeah, especially on this one. So there's plenty, but. Uh, we had a, our friend Sarah from our comedy world had messaged me about this and said, hey, have you looked into this? And I was like, no, I have no idea what's going on. And then, then my like friend, a- well, our friends Maggie and um, my other friend Sarah Wyatt were over. That's what it was. And I was like, have y'all, they, they're huge housewives fans. So they started talking about it. And I was like, what is this? They're like, oh, my gosh, it's it's such drama. You've got to cover it. So. Sarah and Maggie and Sarah are my big housewives go to. Big housewives so, fans. Yeah. Yeah. I did not know you watched it. So I I mean, we were researching for the show and then my intern at work, uh, and who's also a listener, Victoria, she likes housewives. So when I briefly just said, Do you do you watch Real Housewives? She said, Yeah. And I started like live texting her and I'm like, You can tell me if this is inappropriate. Yeah. So I was like, Girl, did you see this episode? Um and then of course Megan, I was it's I feel like the true because you try one must ask oneself. I don't really watch reality shows. And so I wondered why it is such compelling, so compelling to watch. And I think it is because there are no true it's it's there's no true heroes. There's no true villains. I mean, in some cases, there are people who are always the assholes. But as I was watching it, Paris, is, he came home from work and he was you know not really paying attention. And I kept being like, did you hear what she just said? Oh, my gosh. And it's it, it makes you want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the true draw of the reality show the housewives franchise is because for me i was watching it initially because i did want to see okay so we know how this story ends let's go back to you know season or season 11 episode one and see what does she say about him what does she and she does she's like the pandemic was great we all we had the most time bonding and getting closer did you now so it's just interesting to watch for clues Mm -hmm. but but they also they also edited they also edited no one I'm what, sure. No one knows what's going on. Because it's know? shot in whatever, yes. in September, October, November, and they're they're yeah. releasing them right now. Yeah, no, you're right. And so, I, but I realized, that, oh, I really just want to talk about, not just, and obviously Erica's like not even, she's one-tenth or whatever of the show. So getting into everybody else. So when you started watching, I was like, oh my gosh, tell me when you get That's to this part. That's what I'm saying. That's what why I like reality TV. One, it's escapism, and you get mm-hmm. to focus on somebody else's problems and kind of, especially when it's these lavish, exorbitant wealth that you're mm-hmm. going to, that you, few people have that and can experience it to get to a glimpse into that world is interesting mm-hmm. and exciting. But then it is you're it's the hot goss that you want to talk about with all your friends. Mm-hmm. I told you, if you start watching love Island, I can die happy <laughs> because then I can nice. just, I can talk to you about all the, I mean, that's why there's a million Facebook groups that are all mm-hmm. just housewives, Bravo shows, you know, there's mm-hmm. Watch What Happens, where Andy Cohen just rehashes what happens on uh, the Bravo shows. Watch What Crappens Watch what is my there's new a, fave There's a podcast. podcast that goes over it. I mean, people love this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it, it makes sense. I Well, now I'm a stay-at-home pod mom. I can... Yeah. Start watching my more shows because Paris came home and I was watching Housewives on the couch. And my hair is like in a top knot. I'm like, I'm working. This is work. <laughs> I'm researching. This is my job. You're an S A P H. Yes, S A P H. Stay at home, mom. A sap, huh? 
S-A-P-M. Yeah, stay at home pod mom. S-A-H-P-M. God bless. We can figure it out. Figure that one out. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, so we are, this is a crime. This is a white collar crime, yep. but I think the, uh, we don't know how it, how it's going to play out, but I, the victims here are, you know, living with their, not only with the injuries that they sustain, but also with this now. Uh, Very public knowledge that yeah. what they already knew was even worse than, than they mm-hmm. could have imagined. And a pretty lo- small likelihood of re, of, um recovery yes yeah 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 this is gonna be part one there's a lot going on in this so we broke it up into two parts i mean this guy's been sued uh, triple digits like hundreds of times and it's just now finally all coming to a head so we'll kind of explain why but yeah i I can't even i'm like uh do you want me to summarize the lawsuits we cannot list it off it could be again its own podcast Mm -hmm. or its own book yeah just the and the corruption that's led to that let him continue on as long as he has yeah. doing all this horrible crap to people and then what everybody wants to know now is did erica know that's that's the big question you know which we don't have an answer right now Mm-mm. well she knew something because she's flipping to the feds yeah i think <laughs> that she had to have known at least something was going on i don't know about all of it but but something well before we get started we got mm-hmm. some thank yous Oh, yes. Thanks to Eleanor Cash of at T-O-A-O-E stickers on Etsy. Um, We got some very cute stickers for Simon and Ella uh, of little animals on roller skates and skateboards. And they're very, they look like they belong in a children's book. They're very beautiful. Thank you so much for sending them and stuff. That's, oh, I love it when people send them stuff. It's so sweet and nice. And speaking of, I got a sloth shirt and some sloth sticky notes and a little notebook from, and she specifically messaged to say how to pronounce her name because she's also a Patreon. So I hope I do this right. Aditi Prubacher. I hope I got that right. And they're so cute. And she said she sent the sloth shirt because it has a little family of sloths and that she reminded her of me and the kiddos. Tommy, Tommy's on there somewhere too. (laughs) It's fine. It's fine. Yes. So thank you guys so much. It's so nice when you guys think it. when I open that the sloth stuff. Tommy goes, "There's some really nice people in the world." And there I was is. like, "There are. There's a lot yeah. of nice people in the world, and most of them are our listeners." That's what I agree. That's how I feel. Anytime we interact with each other on on the internet or social media, mm-hmm. we get emails. It's like we have the nicest, we do just the kindest listeners. So thank you. Yes. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather, and let's get into it. Erica Chahoy was born July 10th, 1971, in Atlanta, Georgia. She was raised single-handedly by her mother, Renee Chahoy, a music teacher, after Erica's father walked out on the family shortly before her first birthday. One of her catchphrases is, just a middle-class girl from Atlanta. She is? middle-class girl from Atlanta. She, yeah, I mean, low, lower income to middle class for sure, yeah. She did, mm-hmm. definitely did not grow up with the... Amount of money that she now has. No. No. Even as a child, Erica knew she wanted to work in the entertainment industry one day. Upon graduating from North Atlantic High School in 1989, she moved to New York City to pursue her dream at 18 years old. There, she was cast in a small role on an episode of Law & Order and worked as a go-go dancer at Shakers, a famous gentleman's club in New Jersey. Shakers. This is uh, right next door to what 
I don't think it's really called the Bada Bing, mm. but the Bada Bing and the Sopranos. The Bada Bing yeah, Club. Yeah, it's all right around there. Did you watch Sopranos? Uh, I watched the first episode, but I haven't gone past the first, first episode. First episode's great. It was great. Yeah. I enjoyed it, but I did not go past it. Uh, I just think of what it, <laughs> someone did a supercut of them saying Gabagool. Gabagool. <laughs> Gabagool. Gabagool. <laughs> Every time, yeah. So they are ship- So it's not called Bada Bing in real life. In real life, it's called the Gabagool. I would like to add Sopranos to the list of TV shows I've given you that I recommend you. you watch. <laughs> I have a lot of TV show assignments. Now. I also thought of another one today that I think you would like. Um, you may have seen it though. Did you watch Glow? I have not. Oh, okay. Because I was thinking about Mark Maron, and then I was thinking about Glow, and I was like, I bet Heather would like Glow. It's just really sitting good. Around, sitting around thinking about Mark. Just, you know, I honestly, I was also in the shower. So. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Marin in the shower. I was thinking about Mark Marin because we just got new mics and yes. Mark Mark Marin yeah. has the same well, we have the same mic as Mark Marin. No, I don't Mark Marin has the same mics as us. <laughs> so that's why I was thinking about it. Yes. That's true. Um so I that's my list now is Glow. Mm-hmm. Sopranos. And then like 20 others I've given you. There's so many. There's a I lot. Have, I actually have a um, in my notepad, I have a list go and I'll add those to the list. I can rank them too. Or give okay, synopsis. Is that synopsis? Synopsis of each one, depending on what kind of mood you're in. Okay, thank. I would like that. You're very good at that. That's what you did on Patreon with the documentaries. You're like, these are the ones that'll stick with you. These are the roller coasters of emotions. <laughs> these are the thrill rides. This one is required reading, but not very interesting. It's like, thank you for the honesty in all these. Uh, that's amazing. While living in New York, Erica met a local DJ, Thomas Zizzo. In 1991, the two were married, shortly after she gave birth to their son, Thomas Zizzo Jr. When the couple divorced a few years later, Erica packed herself and Thomas Jr. up and moved to Los Angeles to further pursue her acting and singing career. She said he was a hot DJ in the club and that they got married at St. Patrick's Cathedral Mm -hmm. on Fifth Avenue, which is very fancy. It is. Erica continued to pursue her dreams as an entertainer in L.A., occasionally landing small roles on TV and indie movies. Like so many other aspiring artists, she also waited tables to make ends meet. It was while waiting tables at a restaurant called Chasen's that then 27-year-old Erica met Tom Girardi, a regular customer who was 32 years her senior. Well, and that's what Wendy Williams, shout out to my mom who loves Wendy Williams. (laughs) I was watching Erica's, (laughs) one of her many interviews on Wendy Williams, and Wendy Williams said, you know, how do you go out and just meet a guy like that? Um, and she said, you don't. You put yourself in places where mm-hmm. those types of people are going to roll. She, she said, how do you go out and meet a millionaire? And Chasen's is famous because that's where the celebrities had their own booths with their name, like Frank Sinatra mm-hmm. and Groucho Marx. And so going to get a job at a restaurant, that's fine. Going to the restaurant that you know is in Beverly Hills, frequented by dignitaries, politicians, movie stars, you're putting your you're yeah. putting yourself in the right position. You're yeah. putting yourself in the right place. You're not going to go work at Applebee's and uh, no. most I mean, likely meet did, a Tom Girardi. Unli- unlimited appetizers and one dollar Long Island. So well, who really won here? Exactly. And you know what? Those won't get taken away from you in court because <laughs> you've you already you've already consumed them. <laughs> you don't have to flip to the feds and tell them what's going on. You'll be able to tell them what's going on. Mm-hmm. Over the next year, Tom and Erica developed a friendship. Eventually. Erica agreed to give him her number. In a not-so-romantic move, Tom had his secretary call Erica to schedule a date. 
Unsurprisingly, this didn't win Erica over. She recalled in her 2018 memoir, Pretty Mess, that she told his secretary, Tell Mr. Girardi if he wants to take me out on a date, he needs to call me himself and ask me and give me enough time to prepare. She went on to say, You know how men are, especially if they're successful. They expect you to drop everything right away. That's not how I work. I don't care who you are. And again, she said she came up to him at the restaurant and said, you know, I'm single, right? Mm -hmm. Here's my number. I mean, very forward. I like it. I know, man. She was and then saying, I'm not going to just drop. He said she said the secretary asked her to go out to dinner that night. And she said, no, I'm not going to drop everything and go out that night. You got to figure out what Um, you're going to wear. You got to get all dolled up and everything. She also said that because they were friends for a year while she was his server, that she she got to meet everyone that he worked with. She met his whole family. He has three adult children. She's the same age yes. as his youngest. And that she was familiar with everybody that, you know, by the time they finally did start dating, that she said they had gone through all the small talk and, okay, well, now it's time to just get serious. They were already there. Yeah, she was his third wife. Mm-hmm. So he, he'd, he'd been around the block. Have you ever asked a guy out? Have I? Ooh. Well, I mean, on Bumble, I had to make the first move. On uh, oh, that's how that that app yeah, works. Bumble, right? you have to say the thing first. Um, I mean, pretty forward. I'm trying to remember. I, I don't everything's think I, a blur I mean, before I'm very Paris. forward, but I haven't. I I did at the end uh, while we were Bumble chatting. I told Paris, "Oh, I don't check the notifications on here. I get too many of them. Here's my number." <laughs> nice flex. Uh huh. And then he texted me. There you go. So, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I have. But then again, I also didn't. I think I've talked before, like, how I didn't date a lot, really. Yeah, me neither. I always had just, like, a boyfriend. Yeah, I would just, like, be friends with someone, and then I would all of a sudden, like, be... Same. (laughs) Be more than friends. Yep. It's like, why why are we going to go look elsewhere? We're right here. (laughs) It's fine. It's like you just picked the restaurant you're already in the parking lot of. Exactly. Six months after they began dating, the two were married on January 7th, 2000, in the clubhouse of the country club they belonged to. According to the Hulu documentary, The Housewife and the Hustler, Tom asked a judge if he would officiate the wedding. He then grabbed an attorney he knew that was having a drink at the restaurant bar to act as their witness. They were married on the spot. No prenuptial agreement was signed. That's a bold move. (laughs) Years later, in an interview with Andy Cohen, Erica commented on the surprising decision to not sign a prenup. I'm married to a very powerful lawyer. A prenup wouldn't stand in his way anyway, so it doesn't matter whether you had one or didn't. It's going to be Tob's way, I assure you. I mean, she's not wrong. And then she also Mm. said in her memoir that they didn't really think they needed one at the time, which might be Tom didn't think he needed one at the time. I mean, he had money, but... She's like, I had my car and a bunch of trash bags full of clothes that I, yeah. you know, I mean, she she didn't have anything. Why would she? She wouldn't ask for a prenup. He probably should have. Yeah. When you own a business, that's important to just, yeah, I mean, it gets all into in California. Their property laws are very different than Texas. And so one would think it's the prudent thing. <laughs> but if you're a also a high powered attorney, I imagine you'd be like, take me to court. Let's see yeah. what happened. You know, like he knows True. his way around all that. And he'd been divorced before. Twice. Mm-hmm. And he was paying uh, alimony. So maybe mm-hmm. you should have got a prenup. <laughs> While some balked at the age difference between the couple, it has never seemed to bother Erica. In her memoir, she wrote, Tom is 33 years older than me. It was always a bigger deal to everyone else than it was to either of us. 
All a couple really needs is to have the same life philosophy. If you see things the same way, then age, race, religion, none of that comes into play. I have a thirst for knowledge, and Tom has a wealth of it. He's a great mentor, a great teacher, and somebody I really admire. That kind of stuff is a powerful aphrodisiac. I can totally see that. Mm-hmm. Here's my question. And this is not throwing shade at anybody that is in a relationship. I mean, I'm five years older than Tommy. So, yeah, I'm a cougar. <laughs> I think when they when you meet and she's mm-hmm. 27, what's 32 years or 33 plus 27 is 60? Mm-hmm. Is that right? <laughs> Pulls up calculator. Neither one of us seemed confident in that. I literally had to use a calculator 60. today. Okay, I did it it's right. It's also Deuteronomy. The eternal God is your refuge. Thanks, Google. No thanks. I wasn't looking for that. But I had to use a calculator today to subtract um, 49 minus 36. Like, I cannot That's do too it. hard. Yeah, I can't no. do that in my head. Um, so, it, so 60 and... Tw- you know what? My argument just just shit the bed. Because I was going to say, like, 60 and 27, that's still a big difference. But say you're, like, 45 and 25. Mm-hmm. You're still kind of close enough to where I could see that he's older, he's, like, successful, he's got this established career, it's really sexy and everything. But at some point... You're 47 and he's 82. Yeah, that's it does. It takes a turn. And honestly, so I dated a guy that was nine years, nine months, almost 10 years older than me. And the age difference was not an issue at all because we had a lot of the same pop culture references because I was into I liked Mr. Show in the state. And we had a lot of the same comedy Mm -hmm. likes, which I think is important and the same and music and things like that, because I have an older sister. So. I also like the things that my older sister liked. But then I dated a person that was 13 years older. Whoa, really? I didn't know this. uh, It was a thousand percent like the sketch with Tim Heidecker on I Think You Should Leave, where he's like, you got any gazpacho soup? (laughs) He's just like, you guys ever heard of this jazz band? Only it wasn't jazz music. It was like really obscure rock music. So So as much as you think that oh it'll all be so great when you say something like oh my gosh that guy climbed through the window like ferguson on clarissa explains it all mm-hmm. and they're like who yeah <laughs> you're like god damn it you don't know who fucking yeah. clarissa explains it all is so it does it can uh the lack of similar pop culture references i think can sometimes get in the way um and then you know the <laughs> When on, I think you should leave, and he's like, ah, I just farts in the middle of the thing, you know, like kind of different social norms. That one's so great. God, it's so good. He's, he's in the so Colgate good. Comedy Hour. Don't you know the Colgate Comedy Hour? Uh, season two is coming out next week. I'm, and I'm so dying. excited. I'm so very excited. Was this guy that was the 13 year old older than you the same guy that wore the duster? Uh, no, that I was wasn't... a 10 year older guy. He wore the oh, duster and a hat. Dang. And I'll, to clarify, I did not date a 13-year-old. I dated a person 13 <laughs> years older than me. I would like to make that delineation. That is a very important clarification. Um, no, he was, no. So, yeah. So, there, things come up. And then, then again, two ideas of your future. Yeah. Of, oh, I'm going to go to law school. Well, you could be a housewife. And I'm like, after I go to law school. Okay. There's yeah. like, I want to spend hundreds of thousands like, dollars. And he's like, well, I'm going to be 50 then. I don't want to start <laughs> being a dad at 50. You I'll know what I mean? I'll be dead by then. <laughs> at some point, 
it's it's kind of the opposite of a 16-year-old dating a 20-year-old. Nope. Mm-hmm. But a a 24-year-old dating a 28-year-old, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. So it's kind of the opposite. Mm-hmm. But I think it, also... It can work. I think it, it can, can work absolutely. in the right circumstances. Work. I was very young, and so it was not... I was in my last year Well, you were one, maybe. and he was 13. So, yeah, it yeah. was a really young yeah. relationship. Yeah, I couldn't talk. I shit my pants all the time. Uh, no, that was in college. Um <laughs> Not that I couldn't talk or shut my pants. Did, did you ever find that when you hung out with his friends that if it was you and then him and a group of friends that it was even worse? Like you felt really like an outsider because you didn't get the references or just had different interests? Uh, yeah, to an extent. Could be. Yeah. To an extent. He didn't have that many friends. <laughs> so it wasn't that big. So it did, didn't come up. Yeah, but I imagine that it. might be a thing. Like. One on one, you I might, think it was it might not be like my friends was like, "Oh, I don't get what you guys are talking about. Your friends are annoying." Mm. My favorite was when he once said, "You don't even like Gypsy," and Gypsy's one of my absolute closest bestest friends. Mm-hmm. I was like, "I don't even." It's very projecty, right? And so there's there yeah. can be situations of control. Well, that so, sounds emotionally manipulative too. Bing, 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 bing. Uh, and so that could be also something that would happen if you're 27 and your husband is 60, mm-hmm. and you want to do or say or think certain things and they say that's foolish don't do that especially when you're coming from nothing mm-hmm. and and he tom grew up also i mean she says in her book he we kind of shared that that we each came from like middle income families neither one of us grew up with a silver spoon in our mouths but he developed a great amount of wealth but with the age and then also having so much more money than you. Yeah. Power. The it's, power dynamic. It's kind of a power imbalance there. And she said, you know, she, in her cell phone, his name is listed as the boss. Mm. Because she's like, that's what he is. He's, yeah. he's the boss. I mean, so if you kind of have that dynamic, then I feel like, and now she's kind of coming out and saying more now that Spoiler alert, she's filed for divorce, which we'll get into in the second one. But, you know, that he wasn't always the nicest. He he was very supportive, and he's on the show he comes across, he's very rarely on it, as supportive. But then there's also scenes where he's just, like, a huge dick to her. Yeah. And it seems like he's talking like he would, like you shouldn't even talk to an employee, but like she is his employee, you know? And, and you run a law firm with X mm-hmm. amount of attorneys, and they say in the documentary these people are quitting all the time despite having good salary and lavish benefits. Including his son-in-law. Yeah. I mean, do you quit because he's an ass? Yeah. And I mean, also, yeah. I mean, if he's the shark that's winning millions of dollars, he may be an ass. So it could be that they initially hit it off, and then like we you talk about with some of the, you know, the people you saw when you worked at the domestic violence shelter of, like, you the ring goes on and then suddenly it's... I mean, he told her, I'm never going to wear a wedding ring. Yeah. Which, because he said it was uncomfortable. And I actually know people that don't like to wear My their wedding My dad never wore because, a wedding Yeah. Ring. So, like, I'm like, whatever. That didn't strike me as that odd. After Jimmy Fallon ripped his finger off. Dude. <laughs> nasty. Yes. Yeah. When you look up what that is, it's the worst thing I've ever seen on the internet. <laughs> Did he get it caught in something? Yeah. He said he was, like, tripping and falling in his kitchen and the ring got caught on, I want to say, like, a drawer handle. Oh. And then he fell against it, yeah, and it 
that's why he had his hand in a cast for a while. So, oh. I mean, that's that's another thing. Is it, I don't want to wear a ring because it's truly uncomfortable, or I don't want to have a symbol of being sure. drugged down. Yeah, and who who knows? I mean, she's also said many times and, and gotten emotional about it that he's been extremely supportive of her, and mm-hmm. he took her and her son in, you know, and yeah. he didn't have to do that, and he's always... Um, encouraged her to follow her dreams so i think like any relationship there's good and bad i think a lot of people just looked at theirs as unconventional and odd because of the age difference and she's i've every season i saw of it one at least one cast member would ask her about the sex mm-hmm. and she says you know that's a super common question i don't even what get mad she, about it what did she say you know she's always kind of vague she doesn't oh, really. Sometimes from what I've I seen, jump on it, and other times it's shriveled up. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of them, so I mean, people that watch it religiously, I'm sure that they would know better. But in interviews and stuff, because she's she's classy, she doesn't, you know, she's not like, yeah, his dick is shriveled and we, he can't get it up. I mean, she I would, think I she's think like, she would say that. no, I think she's like, we're a, cu- a normal couple, like yeah. any normal couple would be. Mm-hmm. You know, I did read though that she said. You know, as time goes on, it, she didn't say becomes less romantic, but alluded to that, you know. Mm. And there's always rumors that they kind of had an agreement oh. to have extramarital affairs. And, Ew. you know, so who knows? She says that that wasn't a thing, but other people said that that was. So who knows? Who's to say? Yeah. But, you know, if that's your agreement and you're both fine with it, then more I'm power not judging. to you. Not Tom Girardi obtained his law license from the state of California in 1965. That same year, he founded the law firm Girardi Keese with fellow attorney Robert Keese. Until 2020, Girardi Keese was a plaintiff's law firm based in Los Angeles, California, practicing in the areas of personal injury, defective products, sexual abuse, toxic torts, business law, employment law, and aviation law. Being a founding partner, Tom held 100% of the firm's ownership. This was interesting to me because it has two names, so you would think that Keese would own half, but the filings I was reading is that Tom was the 100% owner of the firm. And then in one of the articles I read is that he handled all the financial aspects of the firm. He was close to the vest. Why would you allow another partner's name to be on the building then? I imagine partially due to prestige mm. because I think a two-name law firm sounds better than yeah. a single solo practice law, I law firm. I kind of I think it's like and associates, right? It kind of sounds like there's more people working mm-hmm. there. And they had a whole ass building. I mean, it was a big firm. Oh, he had a lot of lawyers who worked for him. Yeah. yeah. And so I think it's probably partially prestige and partially if that man really, you know, Robert Keyes really did operate as a partner, you would want to give him credit on the side of the building. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure he also had a good reputation uh, so it brings some more cachet to the firm as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is the type of firm that if you're injured, that's that's the case they want. And you see those type of firms crop up because you say if you're injured, uh, you know, if you're in a injured by a defective product and they prove that the product's the thing that did it to you, then there are ex- excessive damages you get beyond just getting compensated for the injury, right? So if you have to have a surgery that's $1,000 and a bunch of other medical stuff and it all totals $10,000, 
then usually your attorney is going to say, well, they also had pain and suffering. And a good rule of thumb is that three times medical damages is pain and suffering. So in addition to you paying $10,000 to the hospital for all of her surgeries, you also need to give her $30,000 just by because you hurt her and you mm-hmm. deserve to do that. So the, that's the kind of firm they are. And they get this, these type of firms are the ones that are getting big settlements. If you're in Texas, this is like... Jim Adler is more of the Texas hammer. He's mm-hmm. more uh, car accident, but yeah. it's the same the same idea. So this is a uh, pro- the, an area of law where a lot of money is to be made. Usually, yeah, especially uh, toxic torts because toxic torts is going to be, and we'll see one of the cases is usually when there's an infection of groundwater and everyone is mm. getting sick or there's. Uh, there was an area in Houston where I think a plastic water bottle plant was seeping into the ground, and the firm that can go in and get the most of those plaintiffs, then they can kind of run the litigation, and they get usually a plaintiff's attorney is going to take thirty three to forty percent uh, of the victim's payout as the attorney fees. So on the good part of this type of lawyer is they don't charge you anything to sue, but they got to get paid somehow, and so mm-hmm. they usually take it on contingency and say, we agree to recoup our costs and then also take 33 to 40%, depending on the agreement, of your winnings uh, as our fee for taking the case. So if you got $30,000, then they're going to take... God bless America. What is thirty? What is thirty percent of? Th- How can I ten thousand? So, no, that's three. Yeah, it would be. No, it would be thirty percent. So, or th- yeah, thirty three, thirty three, thirty three. Right. So you'd say, okay, I'm going to take a third. Um. So you would say, usually okay, they take, so, they yeah, recoup their true. costs as well. So they would also say, oh, and we paid to have this guy deposed, and we paid this expert to come in from New York, and they charge three hundred fifty dollars an hour, and. All that kind of stuff. So, so is there a chance you get nothing? No, uh-uh. there's always some. Well, in this case, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> suck up all your money, but no. Usually, you it just the idea is that you, the lawyer is there because the insurance company most of the time it's insurance payouts, but sometimes it does come straight from the company's coffers that their company is not going to pay any more than they have to. So the idea, and I think for whatever you know, I think there's kind of a bad label on plaintiff's attorneys that they're just ambulance chasers or they're frivolous lawsuits, whatever. On the flip side, seeing as I've seen, I know family members who've used plaintiff's attorneys and they are very necessary because someone is acting how they shouldn't act, whether it's a car driver is being negligent, a company makes a product that injures people, a company seeps shit into the ground and it gives all these kids some type of horrible disease. I always think on 30 Rock when they said the Shineheart wig company um, dumped stuff into the river and made all the kids turn orange. And so you want a lawyer that's going to say, no, 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 we are going to need something more than just you paid their medical bills. You... This person can no longer have sex with their spouse, and that has a value on it. This person can no longer go throw the ball out in the backyard with their kid. That has a value on it. And going line item by line item and saying, you've stolen something from somebody. You've taken something from their lives, and you're going to pay for it. So in that respect, I think, are there ambulance chasers? Of course. Are there unscrupulous attorneys? We're talking about one right now. But I think on the whole, it's really important that we have – This type of person. So on paper, Tom Girardi looks like a hero, right? We're going to go through some of his big cases. And when you go to the Trial Lawyers Association, there's videos of him. And he's like, the little guy. And you want that type of person. You want that hero that movies are made about because they are the ones that are going to swoop in when the somebody's getting crushed by a mean company that's 
not wanting to pay out. Yeah, and they and the company knows that that they're. Oh, oh yeah, they're like, what are you gonna do? Yeah, you're, what are you gonna do about it? Well, when there's enough people. Or even if there's just one lawyer, that's like every John Grisham book ever. <laughs> like yeah. one lawyer gave a shit and took him <laughs> down. Um, and so that's you know that's why they're there. That's why we are there as lawyers is to to help people and you know do podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Early in his career, Tom established himself as one of the most successful attorneys in Los Angeles. In 1970, he was the first attorney in California to win a medical malpractice case where his clients were awarded more than $1 million. He developed a reputation for fighting for the underdog, taking on major corporations like Lockheed Martin, pharmaceutical giant Merck, and Pacific Gas and Electric Company, or PG&E. Arguably one of his biggest and most notable wins was when he sued and won against PG&E for their role in contaminating the drinking water of Hinkley, California, thereby causing hundreds of residents to develop cancer. This case which settled for $333 million, was the inspiration for the movie Aaron Brockovich. That is uh, so much money. And that was spread out over 650 residents. Yes. And then he's getting after fees approximately a third. Or, yeah, after costs approximately a third. And he wasn't the only attorney that worked on that. Yeah, so for for whomever he represented, he would get a third of theirs. Yes. According to the Trial Lawyers Hall of Fame, Tom Girardi has won more than 30 trial verdicts in excess of $1 million, along with over 100 settlements that each surpass the $1 million mark. The LA Times reported that Girardi's cut of cases won was 40%, making him immensely wealthy over the years. His firm threw lavish Christmas parties and conferences, with celebrities like Leanne Rimes and Jay Leno performing. I mean, if you're working people that hard, trial law is a lot of long hours. You want to give them the perks to keep them around. Girardi's power and influence extended beyond his firm and into the political arena of California, with him contributing millions of dollars to various Democratic campaigns. On the documentary, The Housewife and the Hustler, attorney and former president of the L.A. County Bar Association, Brian Kobitek, told producers... He was the man that people went to who wanted to get appointed to the bench and become judges. He was the person that people who wanted to run for political office would go to and meet and talk to. To show Tom appreciation for his generous contributions, Governor Gavin Newsom gave Girardi an official role in appointing state judges in 2019, according to the L.A. Times. And isn't it Gavin Newsom that's on Andy Cohen? They put that yes. clip. And he, they ask who his favorite housewife is, and he says, Erica Girardi, because her husband gave me a bunch of money. Yes. Thumbs up. I love it. Tom Girardi. It's like, that doesn't play very well in I'm hindsight. I'm sure he got millions from him. Yeah. yeah. Is that pretty common that a lawyer is given a role to appoint judges? Well, it would be. It's, it is. It's not uncommon. I think it's difficult because then if the judge was appointed by you, the opposing mm-hmm. side may make the argument if he's on a panel that, you know, he's on a three or four person panel that appoints judges that may be less. If he had the sole appointment power, then that might be more seemingly inappropriate. But yeah, if you appointed the judge and then you're in trial in that judge's courtroom, it's going to be real hard for that judge to be like, well, I'm sitting here because of you. But mm-hmm. yeah, there seems like a conflict of interest there. Well, they're supposed to be fair and impartial. Sure, sure. So are 
attorneys. Yeah, so is everybody, but yeah. <laughs> it doesn't mean that they are. So I mean, no. it's not uncommon. It's just I would I think that sort of sets you up as your as a currently practicing attorney. It would set up opposing counsel for an argument of this judge should recuse themselves. And I noticed in some future litigation in the bar litigation, particularly two different. Uh, I think it was two different ones. I'll I'll talk about it in the next one. But they recuse themselves probably because they got appointed by him. Oh, well, that's at least they were honest. Yeah, I think it'd be. <laughs> I mean, it's like you can hide. <laughs> sure, it. it's public knowledge. Yes, yes yeah. exactly. In the early years of their marriage, Erica was content to play the role of a dutiful wife to a high powered attorney, writing in her memoir. Aside from being Tom's legal sounding board and voice of the lay person at dinners, I served other important functions, too. At a business dinner with another couple, I would entertain the wife while Tom was trying to settle the case. I've had to do a lot of that. Since Tom does so much business in social settings, my job as his wife is to help him close the deal. I'm also in charge of making sure that Tom's suits are laid out. His things are hung up in the closet and paired out, each suit with a matching shirt and tie, as well as belts, socks, and shoes. I'm in charge of making sure that he has everything he needs, that he has his particular toothpaste and his particular cologne. To me, yeah. that sounds like the job description of an assistant. Yeah. I mean, except for the entertaining the wife at the business dinner, but sure. the matching of the clothes. Yeah. I mean, everybody has a different relationship <laughs> with their spouse. <laughs> um, um, That's true. Yeah. If but yeah. I've never, Tommy, honestly, like, well, neither one of us have ever picked out something for the other other one to wear was that weird um because we went out this weekend and paris was like you should wear that dress it's nice and i did no and i don't think I it's weird. very cute i i try to wear a slobby outfit i um i was just like this makes me sound shitty he maybe he's wearing something and i suggest that he wears something else yes that's not that's more flattering you know <laughs> or just like i'm like or he'll see me like dressed kind of nice and he's like, oh, I guess I should go put on a different shirt or something. But I mean, I'll, if he asks, like, what should I wear? I might suggest, but I've never laid clothes out on the bed for him. Like I would my child getting ready for school or something. I wonder if, and maybe I always, you, you don't know what's going on behind closed doors. So one would sure. hope ideally that she did that because she wanted to that he said it makes me feel loved acts of service is my love language i would feel really loved if you did this and not you better my goddamn toothpaste you know like we hope her personality i feel like i mean again we don't know what's going on behind closed doors but her whole bit that she does on the housewives is no bullshit i don't give any fucks i'm a strong independent woman so i think if she's laying out his clothes it's because she's like he's gonna look on point because i'm gonna make sure he looks on point and less of woman you better have my necktie he's a reflection on me also true yeah well as time passed erica realized she was not fulfilled having originally moved to la from new york to pursue a career in singing she found that passion still burned within her. With her husband's support, she decided to finally make her dream a reality, and at the age of 35, began her music career. It was then that she developed her alter ego, Erica Jane, a bold, confident, outspoken woman who isn't afraid to go after what she wants, the complete opposite of how she felt as Erica Girardi. Well, there you go. So I guess she had to step into that role. 
I really applaud her for at 35 because she she admits in interviews like, I know I'm not going to get like a record. deal. I'm not going to become like the next Ariana Grande or something, you know, like Mm -hmm. this is a, a young person's game. But she had always wanted to do it. She had a young son and so she couldn't really do it, you know, when she was younger. And then once he got a little older and she had the means to do it. She was like, I'm still going to do this. You know what? Go after it. Mm -hmm. If you have the means to do it, if you can hire all the producers and music video directors, go for it. Bankroll it. The the only thing is, if those means are coming from somewhere they shouldn't. That's when it's problematic. On January 1st, 2007, her first single, Roller Coaster, was released, eventually reaching the number one spot on the Billboard Hot Dance Club Play chart. In 2009, she released her first album, Pretty Mess, to mixed reviews. Later released hits include Expensive, Painkiller, and How Many Fucks. While no expense was spared on producers, music video directors, backup dancers, clothes, and jewelry, Erica Jane didn't really take off until 2015, when Erica Girardi was cast on season six of Bravo's The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Subsequently, Erica Jane gained a new legion of fans. Yeah, she said on Larry King they were at the Malibu mansion of the Hadids. Yeah, and that, that she was said, a big storyline in, in the season I watched, Yolanda's sickness. Well, she just said, let me just text. I'll, I'll just send a text and you can just be on the show. Yeah. And that was just life-changing. Mm-hmm. Erica Girardi quickly became a fan favorite with her no BS attitude, quick wit, and unapologetically being herself. While she has had her share of tears and fights in the seven seasons she's been on the show, she's better known for her stoic personality, rarely letting her castmates see her sweat and rising above shade thrown her away. I think that's what drew me into her is that she is she's witty. She's yeah. pr- brutally honest. She uh, and so far as we see on the show and truly does not seem to give a fuck when everyone's getting riled up. She's kind of sitting there going, oh, OK, all right, do whatever you want to do. She has gotten real riled up before, though. I got to go back. I, I was just thinking, I don't really want to watch older episodes because it's not got the people on it that I like. But I do like her, so I maybe we'll go back to season six and see. I think it's season... Oh, I don't remember. It was one season... Are they in Dubai? Because they always go on these big, lavish mm. vacations each season. I don't remember where they are, but... She gets into a huge fight at dinner. Oh, nice. And one of the other women mentions her son, who is a cop. Wait, and Tom, she, Tom Jr. is a cop? Tom Jr. is a cop. And she just, like, breaks down and gets very mad and starts, like, sobbing. Like, I think she mentioned, the the castmate mentioned something about her kid. I, I don't think it was dying, but something. She, I don't remember. But it was like, um, you don't know what I deal with every night. My son puts on a uniform and goes out and defends. So it was like a moment where viewers don't normally see her like that Mm. because she is just like usually cool as a cucumber. But there's buttons that can be pushed that definitely get her riled up. But even on the season right now, when they're all in Tahoe and she knows she's about to file for divorce from her husband and all this shit's going on back in Beverly Hills... She doesn't mention anything. Not She's a just word. like, 
Yeah. And I mean, and Kathy Hilton, who can we just for a second. We need to stop the show. We got to talk about Kathy Hilton. Kathy Hilton is a national treasure. What is she's on another, Dude, another planet and I love she it. She is. Oh, I stand Kathy Hilton. I just adore her. And she but can we go back to I'm watching this and they're like Kathy when she was a little girl would do dental procedures on the kids in the neighborhood <laughs> and she's like they didn't want me to do that but I did it. <laughs> and then she goes I was quite a character. Well, I don't think they call that a criminal. They call that yeah, a. Yeah, that's, that's She was doing else. dental procedures on the children in the so neighborhood. Wild. Kathy Hilton, so Paris Hilton's mom, for those of you, I took me a second to connect the dots. Yes. That she is on her own wavelength. She's just chugging Red Bull at two in the morning, going, <laughs> This is a soda, isn't it? And her sister said, No, that's a Red Bull. <laughs> so then she's flipping through newspapers. I can't sleep. I can't sleep. Her sister's Kyle Richards, mm-hmm. who's been on the show for a while. Kathy Hilton was a new addition this season. They're, they have the same mom, I believe. We, we looked dad. it up. Yeah, we looked it yeah, up the other day. I don't remember. Yeah. But um, yeah, Kathy Hilton's a trip, man. She just does what she wants and she, talk about gives zero fucks. She's a chaos agent, too. <laughs> she just throws a lit match and takes off walking. Mm-hmm. She's Yeah. And doesn't really say a whole lot, but runs the show. It's very impressive. And also, yeah. she's a, like 10 times richer than everybody on the show. Oh, so yes. they kind of bow down. I mean, it would if you are in that circle and that's what you value, of course, but then also just, she's cool. Like, I just want to hang out with Kathy She's Hilton. fun. She seems, I wouldn't say the most relatable of them. No. But maybe the one that I'd like to hang out with the most. Yeah. Her and Erica, honestly, are the ones I'd want to hang out with the most. Yeah. Yeah. I would rather have all of my teeth pulled than hang out with Sutton. I cannot stand Sutton. Dude. She is the worst. I didn't enjoy her just right off the bat. She just kind of irked me because she seems like she's kind of putting on a charade, a show kind of. But then when she said that, uh, right, I think talking about racism is worse than COVID. And then she said, <laughs> I just don't even say color. And when a person of color tries to explain their lived experience to you and you yell over them and then just start sobbing and it makes yourself the victim, it's like, yeah. she made me cry because I said I didn't say color. I was just over her from day one. Um, but then the new housewife, Crystal, got back at her because in the talking head, she goes, well, that generation, she's so much older than me. That generation was just taught to say they don't see color. So I can't really fault her for just being from that generation. I was like, nice damn, shade. twist that yep. knife, girl. Yeah, Crystal's new this season, and she just uh, she knows how to play the game. She knows how she accidentally leaves her ninety five thousand dollar AMA bag out. Like, oh, what that bag? And Kyle Richards is like, oh my god, look at that purse. <laughs> I thought, can I be frank? Because I don't know anything about fashion. There's a scene where Crystal is a new housewife. She invites Kyle Richards, who's a veteran, over. And Crystal has this brown Hermes bag that is brown leather, and it looks like a little house, or I guess it's a storefront. storefront. The Uh little storefront. I thought there was just a little leatherette keychain hanging off. And Kyle's staring at the bag, and I thought, that's so rude that she's staring at this bag because it's so ugly that (laughs) she, I thought she was side-eyeing the bag due to ugliness. And I thought, because I don't, again, I don't know anything. And then a little crawler across the screen comes up, and it says Hermes bag, $95,000, which I Googled it. They were so limited edition. They sell, sell almost for like $200,000, $250,000 Christ. on the secondary market. Yeah. And so then Kyle's like, oh, my God, I really wanted one of those. So it just took me a minute to think. I was like, oh, that's so rude because that is a really ugly purse. I thought the same thing. And then uh, once she was like, I haven't heard a word Crystal said because of that bag over yeah. there. I'm like, oh, that's why. Yeah. It's because if you're in that circle, 
Which we are not. No. We, so we don't know. You know that... what I busted out what? this weekend? Speaking of fancy purses, we had former sponsor Fat Fun, <laughs> the old Draper James. Oh, Wicker I've been bag. carrying it too. I just busted it out because uh, it seemed more summery. So that's yep. where I'm like last season Draper James yep. purse that got bag that was free. given to us. Yeah. Uh huh. Yep. <laughs> Promotional consideration. <laughs> I do not purchase things. I have a bag nope. that's shaped like an egg that I got in Las Vegas for twenty dollars. It looks like, like a fried it. egg. It's very cute. But so that's the kind of things I get. It's not an Hermes bag. So I have gotten um uh to I like Crystal. She's new, but I'm on the fence. It's so bad. She's so Sutton's annoying. the worst. Sutton's I think she's going through something emotionally, but when she's roller in her well, face who isn't. I mean, right, aren't we all? It's the pandemic. Come on. This was like shot during the pandemic. She's got that roller thing on her face and she's trying not to cry. <laughs> it's she's, for my anxiety. I got which anxiety of my face. I you know, I'm not faulting anybody for anxiety i've have major anxiety too so if that's what you got to do to get yourself through but when again she's talking to a woman of color saying yes when you told me not to talk about racism it triggered me because i'm from the south and i know what it feels like to be stereotyped because everyone in everybody thinks people from the south are racist i'm like did you just compare that yeah to what yeah this uh, an Asian American -American person in the climate especially while COVID was more prevalent and the amount of violence that you can with a straight face go I am more persecuted than you because I'm a white lady from the south and I just like that Dorit goes I don't think anybody thinks that about (laughs) white ladies from the south maybe you but I don't think that when I look at Erica and she's from the south yeah yeah, so. and she's like, Erica, don't you feel that way? And Erica's like, no, I, do I not. don't. <laughs> I don't feel like people think I'm racist at all. I don't fucking care. Uh, this has turned yeah. into a Real Housewives uh, recap. Real Housewives <laughs> recap. But it's it's I w- the only other thing I wanted to say, because you mentioned how much richer Kathy Hilton is than the rest of them, when Sutton has that Parisian party, which, first of all, that's how I know I don't I would not get along well with this group, because if it was like dressed like you would in Paris, I'd be like, Okay, I'm gonna go get a, get a beret at the dollar <laughs> store. I don't know what people wear. Whenever I travel, I like to wear this this bag that can't get cut off of you by uh, yes. pickpocket. So I'm gonna carry that bag. Exactly. Um, I have on cargo pants and yes. like a vest with like the internal pockets <laughs> with the RFID chip. Yes, blocker. and and very sturdy boots that do not cause blistering. But she has all this caviar that they serve, mm-hmm. and she goes. It's being served fresh because Kathy didn't want it sitting out. So whatever Kathy wants, Kathy get and like literally, Kathy had told her ahead of the party, yeah. do not have this caviar at your own party sitting Don't out. I own. want it served fresh to me. And they're like, Yeah, we will do that, Kathy. Help Kathy me. goes, It turns gluey. I don't want to eat it because it's kind of gluey. <laughs> it's like yeah. you've eaten so much caviar. So that much you know that you know that. Mm-hmm. That it turns yes. gluey. She all sudden also was trying to sell stuff at her party, which that was tacky. Get out, get out of my life. And yeah, that was not super friends. tacky. Oh yeah, it's gonna be our new separate podcast. Yes, honestly, this will <laughs> probably become something on Patreon where yeah. we discuss the Real Housewives on a weekly basis. I'm or something. into it. Yes, for sure. While her husband Tom has only made a few appearances on the show due to his demanding job. He and Erica's lavish lifestyle and exorbitant wealth have been on full display. A sprawling Pasadena mansion, Lamborghinis, two private planes, exotic vacations, $100,000 handbags, and millions of dollars worth of clothes and jewelry have been typical living for the Girardis. 
Erica, who grew up relatively poor, doesn't mince words about her riches, famously quipping in an episode of Real Housewives, Being poor sucks and being rich is a lot better. I mean... Is that accurate? Yes. I don't know, because... I mean, maybe, but also, like, I think with this show every season, and I mean, I don't even know how many franchises there are. There's so many. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a real good example of how money doesn't solve all your problems, and in fact, it creates a lot more for you a lot of the time. Some of them went to jail because of the money problems. Several. Several have gone to jail. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also this constant state of feeling competition and like Mm -hmm. you have to keep up with the joneses it seems exhausting yeah i texted you when you said we were talking about this off the air and i said i just recently watched the annie biography of jeff foxworthy and (laughs) i think what that proves is it's not even money it is the scene trying to be on the Mm -hmm. scene and he lives in atlanta and he has more money than all these people probably not more than kathy hilton but maybe close and lives in a on a farm in Atlanta and hangs out with his friends from high school. His manager is his best friend from seventh grade. He goes to church. I love that. I know. He goes and ministers at a homeless shelter. You know, he raised his kids. He was home. You know, so if you, it just, what do you, what do you prioritize, right? You yeah. get to make money because you get to do what you love, which is to make people laugh. And then you prioritize your family. He said, oh, I'm, my, I'm a dad and a husband before anything else. Well, it's like if you're thinking, well, I'm a TV personality, so I have to do whatever it takes mm-hmm. to just maintain this lifestyle, and I have to make sure whether it's Tom or Erica or anybody on any show going, okay, no matter at what cost, even if we have to do crime, we have to make sure that we have the best mansion, the best clothes. She has to have the best makeup artist. So prioritizing the wrong thing, I think, is this brings that, that out in people is saying we have to keep up with the with everybody else. Mm-hmm. It's I would feel like I would never be able to tell if someone liked me for me, mm-hmm. you know, or I'd feel always judged. Like if I didn't have the newest handbag mm-hmm. or I wore some you know a pair of shoes that weren't expensive enough that everyone's looking down on that like it's everything's so surface yeah it's all very yes sir what's the word i'm looking for uh superficial yeah yeah yeah, yeah. real superficial while viewers couldn't get enough of the drama and millionaire lifestyle not everyone was so fond of tom flaunting his wealth in the housewife and the hustler brian kabatek recalled how he felt we represent people who are victimized by big corporations and rich people. And here you're putting out that you're super wealthy and that you're basically the man. We sue the man. You don't want to be the man. And he's showing people that he's the man. For the Girardis, however, it appeared that the pros of luxury living outweighed the cons of Tom's clients being potentially bothered. That has got to be a real slap in the face mm. to, as we'll see, while all of this is going on on TV and coming out weekly, a lot of his clients are sitting at home wondering where their settlement checks are Yep, because they uh, got 90% of their body burned in an explosion at their house and, you know, their family died in a plane crash. And you're like, where is my money? And then you watch his wife spending $40,000 a month on her glam squad. Yes. She has a creative director for her life. God, what a job. <laughs> is that the guy in the Mikey? episodes that... Is that... Yes. Uh-huh. 
kind of when she moves reorganizes mm-hmm. her closet and, and he says we'll make one bedroom your shoe and accessory closet and one bedroom we'll make into your regular closet and we'll have it all separate and all organized and she's had to move in this tiny house and still has all of this stuff that mm-hmm. was bought with ill-gotten theoretically mm-hmm. ill-gotten gains and she has an assistant also and a makeup artist and a hair person that travels with yeah. her yeah yeah that's how you spend forty thousand dollars a month is you have a whole payroll of people that's wild. She confirmed that on Wendy Williams. Wendy Williams said, you look so beautiful. You're telling me this is 40000 a month. And she said, well, it's all about hair, makeup, and wardrobe. And so that's where the money all goes is the people that are in charge of that, they're not cheap. So I had to pay them. That's a salary for a lot of people. Per month, yeah. I mean, that's it's four people's salaries. And she's paying yeah. a hair, makeup, assistant. No, I'm saying 40000 oh, yeah. a year is the salary oh, yeah. for a lot of people. Yeah. So she's spending that in one month. Yes, on a glam squad. I mean, she's creating jobs. Let's say, let's just go there. Let's say Erica Jane is a <laughs> sure, job creator. Sure. <laughs> she's got four employees. But I also wonder, I mean, I guess it's for filming. But I, I, I don't know. I don't know how the Bravo stuff works and if you have to do that kind of stuff yourself mm. or if they have hair and makeup on set that does it for you you might even if they do you might like trust your people better well when they went to tahoe everybody was doing their own faces you could tell that's true yes they were yeah oh and they were real tossed that they had to carry their own luggage so up four fucking stairs off. <laughs> crystal literally says this is unacceptable you're in a free girl tahoe mansion a huge like amazing mansion that you did not pay, that probably none of you pay for. No, it. The I mean, show paid for Lisa, it. Lisa like invited everybody, but yeah. I imagine, yeah, the show probably paid for it. Good Lord. Yeah. This is unacceptable. So is that what she's doing it for? Or is it just to feel glammed up every day? I, don't, I mean, they seem like they were just hanging out with her at her house, too. And do you get to the point Maybe where. Maybe they're just friends. I was going to say, do you get to the point where you're kind of isolated? Real Housewives are not friends with each other. They are, but they aren't. You know what I mean? They they know each other. They went and all supported her when she was on Broadway. So they, they have some type of a friendship, but they're not your best, best friends. So mm-hmm. if you want somebody and your husband and you aren't hanging out that much because he's off being a busy lawyer, I mean, is she paying yeah. to have friends? Maybe, yeah. Who also happen to do makeup. I mean, I'd like that friend too. Right. Can you learn how to do really good makeup? Uh, Just come me. over and do my makeup. <laughs> if you've ever seen me with my own makeup on, you will know. I actually like doing makeup, so I'll, I can do your you do makeup. makeup. I'll do your hair. I'll figure out. The, I'll figure out hair. I'll watch okay. some YouTube videos. That's good. We'll be each other's glam squad. Oh, that's perfect. Reciprocal glam squads at DCH. I remember we had a show. And beforehand, you were like, oh, "I'm wearing so much makeup," and you literally just had eyeliner on, and I was like, "Heather, look at me right now." <laughs> Look at the amount of makeup I'm wearing and then say you have a lot of makeup on. If I have eyeliner on, I feel like I have a lot of makeup on. Well, you're naturally gorgeous. Oh you my don't gosh, need thank any you. makeup. I like don't wear makeup so that I set a standard that's like real bottom line and that you know way what? when I do wear makeup it looks out of this out of this world. Yeah. Very rarely over the past year and a half have I worn makeup. And now when I do, uh Ella's like, "What's on your face?" Okay, rude. <laughs> First of all, <laughs> Well, Erica said her signature tagline in the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills opening, I'm an enigma wrapped in a riddle and cash, describes her well, telling the LA Times in a 2016 interview. What I think is great is it does kind of describe what's going on with me. People see me and assume one thing, and then they get to know me and then see that there's more there. 
When asked what people usually assume about her, she went on to say, She's a lot of blonde hair and this big personality and I couldn't possibly have any substance. I couldn't possibly be kind or warm. I think people thought I was just pure surface. I think that she does have a lot beneath. I mean, I think all these people do. At the end of the day, they're human beings, you know, and they're like anyone on a reality show. You kind of play this character up that you've developed Mm -hmm. and you know that you're being watched and there's cameras around you all the time. And especially when the show is geared around your lifestyle and how wealthy you are. But I think that of all of them, I, if I needed advice, I feel like I'd go to Erica. She wouldn't, she would not bullshit you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She says that she's no BS. And when you see her in interviews, she does have a different affectation. She speaks a little bit differently. She She's on when she's on Real Housewives, when she comes rolling in and is like, I rubbed a bunch of THC oil on my vagina. And you're like, what is happening right now? <laughs> and she's like, I'm rolling. I want to drink a toddy and get crazy. And you're like, okay, then. Who knows how much they've also been indulging before those cameras That's start true. rolling. Get you know? lit up. So, yeah. And then you see her in interviews and she's really humble. And she said she got really emotional when she talked about the other castmates coming to support her when she was on Broadway. Mm-hmm. So you, everyone contains multitudes. I think it's easy to write off a show to see sure. a reality show and write it off and say, you know, they're all just a bunch of blah, blah, blah you know, idiots, whatever. They suck. They're t- trash, whatever. When in reality, they're human beings. They probably are playing a part. But I think we've seen with this, there's been a lot of tragedy throughout the Real Housewives franchise. Love Mm -hmm. Island has had tragedy where Mm -hmm. that the clashing between your on-screen persona and that little gummy bear inside of who you really are and people want to chomp up the on-screen persona not understanding that there's a sweet little gummy bear in all of us. And you have to be Mm -hmm. kind even if somebody's putting themselves out there on a show, they still... If I could, what did, what did Tara read? I was just watching this YouTube video of celebrities who regret plastic surgery that they've had. And it was a watch mojo where it's celebrities who've given interviews who have said, oh, I really regret having this. And mm-hmm. one was Tara Reed, And she, people have criticized her body a ton. And she said that, like, I'm a human. If you cut me, I bleed. Mm-hmm. I hear these things. I internalize them. It's really hard. I know what, what regrets I have. So for any of these people. Even if they're in the public eye, it doesn't make anybody impervious to hurt feelings or broken hearts. So as much as she does have that, I don't give a fuck, you guys, do whatever you want. She still is, at the end of the day, a human being. Yeah. Is she a human being that participated in a mass scam to steal money from people? We don't know. That's the question. What plastic surgery did Tara Reid regret? Her breast implants. Boob job? Yeah. Yeah. She she was like, and then she had had, I think, uh, something like on her torso, too. Tummy tuck or something. something like that, like went awry. Yeah. Yeah. Five years before Erica Girardi was cast on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, on September 9th, 2010, 19-year-old Joseph Rui Gomez was sitting on his couch with his girlfriend at their home in San Bruno, California. In the documentary The Housewife and the Hustler, Rui Gomez recalled how he heard a loud rumble, felt his home shake, and within seconds was engulfed in flames. It would later be discovered that a faulty gas pipeline laid by PG&E had burst. The massive explosion destroyed 38 homes, injured 58 people, and killed eight, including Joseph's girlfriend. Joseph survived, but over 90% of his body was burned, causing severe external and internal injuries. This footage. Heartbreaking. 
Oh, man. And scary. It's your worst nightmare. So scary. You hear a rumble yeah. and you think, oh, it's an earthquake. And then you're yeah. there. He said that he ran one way. The girlfriend ran the other way. He was inhaling flames. So he was breathing fire down into his lungs. Oh, my gosh. And the the footage of all the houses in flames. I mean, it is. It's just, and then afterwards, it's laid flat. Yeah. There's nothing left. Yeah. Oh, it leveled the entire neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And his... He said he somehow found the back door in mm-hmm. all the fire and smoke, went outside. Next thing he knows, he's in an ambulance and they're putting oxygen on his mm-hmm. face. He has no idea where his girlfriend is. And then she was later found in the shed mm-hmm. of their neighbor. Yeah. She had probably gone in there to try and get away from the flames and, and passed away. Well, and at some point, it's just an enormous fireball everywhere you run. Yeah. You can't really yeah. even get away from it. Yeah. A family friend of the Rui Gomez family, who worked in the legal field, suggested they hire Tom Girardi to represent them in their case against PG&E. On the documentary, Jamie Rui Gomez, Joe's sister, recalled how confident they were in Girardi and how he was a calming and reassuring presence for the family. Joe's mother, Kathy, said the family was ready to go to trial to fight when Girardi told them he had settled their case for $11.5 million. And Joseph was going to have, you know, this wasn't going to end soon. So, you know, no. is $10 million, is $11.5 million is enough? Did you want to go to trial and try to get $20 million? You know, if it's a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, for all respects, that seems reasonable. So here's my question. It seemed on the documentary that they were very surprised the case had been settled. Like they showed up and he just said, oh, we're not going to trial. I settled your case. Yeah. Is that normal or wouldn't your attorney give you a heads up that this is what's going to happen? In my opinion, as a practicing lawyer, your client is your boss. That your job, my job for any of my clients is to say, here's based upon the facts you have given me, here are your rights. Here are the three strategies or two or 10 strategies we could go with. If this, you know, it's very much like if this, then what, right? So like if Mm -hmm. we pursue this, this is the possible outcome. The likelihood is, you know, 50% that this will work out. If we do this other thing, here's the other possible outcome. I'm going to tell you, I really think you should go with plan A. I think that's going to be the best bet for everybody. But let's talk about what you think your options are here. It is makes my ass twitch to think that you t- you call your client and go, no, this is what I did. Fuck yourself. Like, this is what I did. I don't care what I you mean, think. I mean, could you sue him for, I don't know if it's breach of contract or something, but basically, like, you just making a decision like that without consulting you. Yeah, I mean, you can always make a bar complaint about someone and say they didn't protect my rights. I didn't feel like they protected my rights. There's a certain amount of discretion that you have as a practicing attorney that if the... Uh, bar reviews what you did and says, well, he didn't, you know, it's reasonable approximately about what they would have gotten, yada, yada. Uh, To me, that's failure to communicate with your client, which is in some, there's like the model rules that the American Bar Association promulgated. And then each state has their own attorney ethics rules. And it's rule like 
it's in the one. So it's like rule the chapter one and it's rule 1.1, 1.2, 1.3. It's like 1.5 or 1.6 is like you have to update your client about their case and communicate mm-hmm. with them and maintain an open channel of communication. So to me, if you make a decision, a massive decision, like we are not going to go to trial, we are going to settle your case without telling your client, that to me is a breach of your ethical duty to communicate with your client. I'm not a practicing attorney in California. But to me, that says that's somebody who thinks they know better than the client. And listen, we're attorneys. We do know better than you. But it's also your fucking life. So the idea is not that I'm here to you're not my little puppet. And I'm going to say, well, I know for a fact we're going to get twelve million dollars. So I'm going to settle it so that I can make sure I get my thirty three or forty percent of this twelve million dollars. My job is to say, what is the what course of action do you want to take? I have advised you of all your rights. I've advised you of what I think is the best course of action. I'm here to listen to you. And so at the very least, that's failing to communicate with your client. That was my second question. Would, if knowing what we know about him and what he's done, is he settling the case perhaps because it is guaranteed money and he doesn't know how much he would get if he goes to trial and plus he's getting it sooner than having to wait for trial yeah and there is something to be said for settling a case it's not wrong that he settled the case and it sounds like this is you know when the family's interviewed they're happy with this amount it wasn't Mm -hmm. like he settled for you know some tiny ass amount but i'm sure that factors into it and and it that's something that you would then tell your client you would say i highly highly recommend that we settle because it's going to be extremely expensive to litigate this case we're gonna it's gonna come out of your pocket too, client because this is a contingency fee case so i'm gonna have to burden the cost you're gonna have to then reimburse me for those costs but we're gonna have to have civil engineers come out we're gonna have to have Mm -hmm. people that are experts in laying pipe in uh, experts in hell yeah experts in laying pipe but experts in (laughs) manufacturing pipe experts in maintaining pipe so you're gonna have a ton of discovery it's gonna be years long so you just tell them that you explain it to them and say At the end of the day, you may end up with the same, approximately the same amount of money, or you may end up with $15 million, but with three more million dollars of costs that's going to come out of your pocket. So you're going to end up with 12. So you just get $12 million now and you don't even have to fuck with all that. Just tell them that. Yeah. Just explain this is why I think we should do what we're going to do and not just, I have done the following. You're welcome. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Joe knew he had a lifetime of pain and surgeries ahead of him and told the documentarians he was pleased with the amount Girardi had secured. Tom told the family it would take several months before the money was available. During this time, Girardi suggested that Kathy allow him to invest the money for her son, assuring her the funds would accrue 6% interest and that there was no possibility of a loss. He told her he wanted the best for Joe, writing in a letter. The primary reason I'm trying to manage the young man's funds is that so nothing goes wrong. According to Us Weekly, Tom also told the family on several occasions that they were his favorite clients and that he was in your corner. I just want to have a public service announcement. Uh, This is free advice for today. As a former hedge fund manager and a current scam uh, busting attorney, if someone tells you that they can get you a guaranteed percent return with no risk of loss, it is a Ponzi scheme and they are going to steal your money. You heard it here. That's it. <laughs> the The second, I didn't know anything about this case. The first taste of any of this was watching this documentary. And the second that this nice family who genuinely, I mean, he groomed this family. 
for oh, yeah. the whole time he knew him. I mean, it was nine years, right? It was 2010 was the accident, and the settlement came well, almost quite, not quite nine years. Yeah. But so he groomed them to trust him. But as soon as we're watching the documentary and they said, oh, yeah, Tom told us he would invest it and we would get a guaranteed 6% return with no risk of loss in the living room. I went, eh. I was like, nope, nope. That is Ponzi scheme 101. If there is an investment, there's always a risk of loss. Sure. Yes. You can't guarantee no. that. That's, who are you? The only way you can guarantee it is if it's a Ponzi scheme and he's paying you out with someone's money, someone else's money. Mm-hmm. Joe recalls in the documentary how the distribution of checks was inconsistent. The agreement was he would be mailed a check every month. However, they were often late or didn't come at all. When Joe would call Tom to inquire about it, Joe was often told, Oh, sorry about that. These things happen. I'll, I'll get it to you next week. And that Tom would try to soften him up, saying, Please don't be mad at me. Joe said Tom often treated him like a child. And that he didn't understand why he wasn't being given the money he was awarded for all his pain and suffering. By 2017, Joe said the checks stopped coming entirely. He also blamed this mediator. Yes, Justice, Justice Shipley, I believe was his name. And the mediator stopped mediating after they settled. That's usually what yeah. happens. And he kept saying, Justice Shipley doesn't want you to have your money because you're a little baby boy. And the guy's like, I'm 20 years old. Like, yeah. I'm an adult. Let me pay. Also, even if I was a baby boy, it's my fucking money. Yes. I'm the one who got burnt up in this explosion. Yes. It's like, give me my money. Significant, severe injuries that for which he said there were times that he was having surgery and he said, hey, I have a surgery next month, and I really need to pay the yeah. surgeons. And Tom said, oh, there's just a mix-up. I'm sorry. It's just like a mix-up. Okay, that's a Ponzi. I mean, it's a Ponzi scheme. It's a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. In The Housewife and the Hustler, similar stories from other victims are shared, including a woman who suffered with a botched vaginal mesh surgery and a man who lost his mother in the 2018 Lion Air plane crash in Indonesia. Each of these clients were entitled to payouts ranging from 900000 to $12 million. As is customary, their settlement funds were paid into the firm's trust account. Rather than distributing the client's money to them immediately, as he should have, Tom offered to invest the funds for some clients, promising a guaranteed return with no chance of loss. While Tom convinced the Rui Gomez family that their son's money would be safer in the investment account, he told others that their funds hadn't been received by the firm yet, when, in fact, the funds had hit the trust account months earlier. Lawsuits allege that rather than invest these funds or distribute them to clients, Tom used them to bankroll his and Erica's extravagant lifestyle. This is... Wow. I mean, I think one of the judges said the term, this is law school 101. I had to take a class called... Prof we all do, before they let you graduate, take a class called professional responsibility and especially in these personal injury cases, when there's settlements, the knowing that the lawyer has to pay experts, recoup costs, pay themselves fees, and then pay the client out, the check comes written with your name on it. So the settlement check would be $11.5 million. It's the memo line may say for the benefit of Joseph Ru Rui Gomez, but the two line says Girardi Keys Law Firm. Mm -hmm. And so when I had my own practice, I had two bank accounts. And one is my trust account, and in Texas it's called IOLTA, and it's the interest off of the trust account 
goes to the Texas Access to Justice Fund, which funds things like legal aid. So it all comes full circle. And so if you have a bunch of client money sitting in your trust account and it's accruing trust income, I don't get to keep that interest income. Even something Mm -hmm. is the pennies that get accrued off the client balance does not go to me. It goes to fund legal aid. And so that's one bucket of money. And then I have my firm operating account, which is my other bucket of money. So say I was going to do a a project for a client that was going to be I took a retainer of $1,000. I have not earned that retainer because I haven't done any work. So the retainer goes into my trust account and then say I bill five hours at $100 each. Okay, that's $500. Then when I send the client a bill, I say, hey, here's your bill. I worked five hours. It was $100 each. I'm going to take it out of your trust account balance. Then I would literally move the money from my trust balance to my operating account. It all goes into my accounting software and it gets tracked. So then if I you know, that's all the work I needed to do. And it's the end of the engagement. I tell my client, you have $500 in your trust account. I'm going to write you a check and give you your money back. Well, just the same, that same account is where settlement funds get paid. So if I had Mm -hmm. a client who was in a car accident and I may have given what's called letters of protection to a medical provider where I go, Hey, my client got injured. She doesn't have any money. Uh, in a few months or a few years, we're going to get paid back. I promise I will come and pay you chiropractor, surgeon, whoever, trust me, here's a letter. Then, however, many months later, when the money comes through, it goes to Heather McKinney and I put it in the trust account. And then what I have to do is go and pay everybody off. So I go and pay the fees for whatever medical expenses my client has incurred. Then I pay myself my percentage that I earned. And then the remainder goes to my client immediately, right away. Mm -hmm. I'm not an investment advisor, so I'm not going to keep it in some sort of magical secret investment account that is full-on shenanigans. That's not at all what you do. And for damn sure, if you take either a settlement amount or a retainer amount that you didn't earn, you don't use your trust account as your piggy bank. That's not your money. From day one, they tell you in law school, it's not your fucking money. It's not your money. That's like the worst thing you could do. It is. I mean, besides maybe murder your client or like attack them physically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the fundamental thing about a job like being a lawyer is that we are trusted. It's the same as if you're an investment advisor and you're a fiduciary. You're trusted with somebody's whole entire life. You're trusted with all their money. So like whether it's Tom Girardi or Bernie Madoff, you're trusted with the utmost care and duty to your clients. And then you turn around and use it like a piggy bank. Mm. It's the ultimate, ultimate betrayal. Especially when these are, you're at your most vulnerable. Yes. These are people on the you, worst days of their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And and years after yes. are continuing to relive the worst day of their lives. I mean, mm-hmm. he, at the time the documentary was filmed, I believe Joe said he was on his 30th surgery. Yes. And it will continue forever. I mean, he can't, the skin he, like regrafts to itself. So he's yes. going to constantly have to have surgery. And that's the and other he's thing. In pain is, and can't like lift his arms all the way. I mean, it's, oh, yeah. it's a lifetime of suffering. And it's not even. So you see with Bernie Madoff or Alan Sanford was like the Texas Bernie Madoff. It wipes people out. It's money that they spent their whole lives earning. They worked up. They It's their retirement savings. They really, really earned it. They they And it's super sad and tough. But in this case, this is money that was earned by their pain, by the death yeah. of someone's mom, by the mm-hmm. burning of their lungs, by the woman describing the, the loss of his girlfriend. When I worked for a federal judge, I had to do some vaginal mesh litigation. And the ugh, reading the fact ugh. patterns made me uh, like actually upset, want to cry. It is so physically painful to think about. And the 
there's no way that we can make someone's pain go away. But as a society, we've chosen to have courts. We've chosen to say, okay, you get some recompense for your suffering to take money that was earned Mm -hmm. by someone's physical pain or the loss of a loved one is to me unfathomable. It's, and then it's all playing out in a show on reality TV where you're, I mean, being poor sucks. Being rich is awesome. Their mansion is decked out to the Mm -hmm. fucking nines. Who, why do you need two planes? I mean, give me a break. And like, the Kabatech says in the documentary, attorneys are wealthy. Yes. Like, a lot of attorneys are wealthy. Oh. That's, you know, it's a trope. Everybody knows that. But you don't got to go flaunt it no. in your clients' faces when you're, you've built your brand and your firm on fighting for the underdog and people that can't afford an attorney, mm-hmm. you know? And, and then you're, oh, and then they're at home watching this knowing I'm not getting my payment well i mean i've been in a, this attorney's house in dallas it was for a bar event i don't personally know this person but they made their money on tobacco litigation toxic tort litigation it is the biggest house i've ever been in i have never visited the white house but i imagine it's bigger than that i mean it's huge it's so fancy there's a house manager there was fine art on the wall and if i was not the trash that i am i could tell you what the artist was but it was the <laughs> nicest but those people's clients got paid first Sure. So they've done their job. They've done a good. They've done a super good job for their clients. Absolutely. I so mean, they if deserve he paid their clients out and his lenders. He should. Yeah. He can have whatever exactly. he wants. You, know? you can have. She bought him a five thousand dollar toilet. Erica Girardi bought Tom Girardi a five thousand dollar toilet, as alleged in one of these lawsuits. For five thousand dollars, the toilet better come up and suck the doo doo out of my butt. Like, <laughs> what is happening for five hundred or five thousand dollars? <laughs> Sorry, it's a five thousand dollar toilet. Let me clarify. I mean, what is it doing? Does he give you background? Uh, is it gold? I don't. I didn't see a photo. It was just written about in the, one of the petitions. I tell you what, you get a five thousand dollars toilet, you turn on some Dipsy, done and done, and then <laughs> you see why that thing costs a cool five k. Five k, yeah. So mm-hmm. I don't, I don't fault anyone for being successful and being wealthy, and especially if the person whose house I was in in Dallas, they're successful because. They got a bunch of money for people who were horribly injured. That's great. Mm-hmm. But when yeah, for sure. didn't take the money, though. Exactly. Yo, yeah. There's no... I don't fault anybody for working hard and being wealthy mm-hmm. and wanting to live it up. Mm-hmm. I mean, shit. I, I'd do the same. Right. But I would do it with morals and ethics. Yeah, yeah. You know, especially when your whole job... I mean, y'all got to take some kind of oath, right? Uh, it's Saying a big, serious a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it makes it's us... called like the Hippocratic yeah, Oath, Yeah, I mean, right? yeah, exactly. It's what they call it. The Hypocritical mm-hmm. Oath. Tom Girardi uh, mm, got him. Super burn. No, but we, I mean, we swear to protect and defend and uphold the Constitution, but also we swear to the ethics of our profession and we are held, most of us who mm-hmm. don't give a lot of political donations are mm-hmm. held to a certain set of standards and what we will unfold in part two is that the system completely collapses when it is corrupted by ultimate money and power. Absolutely. Another thing in the documentary is the voicemails that the victims play. I cannot take it. Of him fully knowing what he's doing yes. and leaving these voicemails. I mean, give that man an Oscar. Seriously, this woman, the vaginal mesh survivor has 
of settlement. It's around $900,000. Apparently, according to records, it was deposited May of 2020. And she has a voicemail from him from August of 2020 saying, I'm so sorry your check is taking so long. I just don't want you to be mad at me. I'm on your side. You're one of my favorite clients. I just really, when we hear, you know, the whole question is, did Erica know and what did she know and when? Hearing how emotionally manipulated he manipulative mm-hmm. he is with these clients, God only knows what he's like at home. That yeah. please don't be mad at me. Meanwhile, on the flip side, he's literally stealing, allegedly according to lawsuits, from their very pockets. And you hear him on a call being able to, with a straight face, say, I don't know what's taking so long with your money. You spend it on fucking jet fuel for your one of yeah. your two private jets. Oh, man. Yeah, it's and no, it, I don't know. I mean, we'll talk about it in the second one. They're trying to play up a lot of stuff right now, saying he wasn't, men, he was mentally unwell, incapacitated. But, uh, yeah, inc- yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know about all that. He seems pretty lucid and and with it. Oh yeah. From what well, I, can I think tell. we're gonna debunk the uh, Tom has dementia in episode two. So my question is then. Are you just in so deep that you don't know how to get out? And it's just you're, I mean, you're doing whatever you can to stay afloat because you've got this lifestyle you're trying Mm -hmm. to uphold, but you're also like have lenders that you can't pay back and you're who knows what else. I mean, car payments, mortgage, like anybody else would have. So you're just constantly like. A shit ass load of country club memberships. I got to see some of their financial spending in some of these lawsuits. That man spends Wild. he spends a lot of money at Morton's <laughs> steakhouse. So, oh, she says in one of the That's episodes she, that he brought home Morton's like five nights. And she's uh, like, a week. I was eating fast food just so everyone knows I wasn't spending all the money. Um, mm-hmm. But Tom, he he's obsessed with Morton's steakhouse. But I think you're right that you do get to the point where the house of cards blows over and you're just left trying to scramble and rebuild, and it's just never going to happen. So, do you think you feel guilty? I think the whole time partially but he i don't know not enough not enough to stop it like i always wonder and this is just speculation and and thinking out loud but i always wonder with stuff like this do they feel guilty and they think if i can just get to this point then i can pay everybody back and i'll smooth it over and no one's gonna find out and so they even though they might be lying to themselves they tell themselves their intention mm-hmm. is to make everything right eventually. Yeah. Because otherwise, what would your end game be? I mean, that you get caught. I mean, like, I assume, like, you would have to think, I'm going to make all this right at some point. But you're just, it's just constant moving things, shuffling things around. I think I know what happened. We'll, we'll talk about it and what do we think. Ooh. Well, between 2016 and 2019, Tom and his firm, Girardi Keese, collateralized its future contingency payments via a California litigation financing company. It is customary for plaintiff's attorneys to take out loans to fund the cost of a lawsuit, including the cost of experts, depositions, and investigations. In exchange, litigation funding companies take a security interest in the future payouts that lawyers attempt to secure for their clients. Once the lawsuit is won or settled, the lawyer is supposed to first pay back the lenders with the funds received from the opposing party. Then the lawyer should pay the remaining balance, less legal fees, to the client. Tom then resold the same cases again and again. 
In total, it is believed that Tom secured about $39 million in proceeds from five different lenders, creating what the initial lender called a web of deceit that was bound to disastrously unravel, which it did. So explain the lender thing. Yeah, so we have multiple. So as I was going through all the lawsuits, I got on the state filing system, federal filing system, and has been just digging through pages and pages and was just jaw on the floor at what was going on. So on the surface, it seems like he was going into that trust account, piggy bank, and just taking money out, which I think that he was. I think the evidence will eventually show that he was. The worst, it's not worse, but the bigger mess that he has created is that, you know, when you buy a house, you take out a mortgage and then the mortgage is secured by your house. Well, with these litigation financing companies, you take out a loan and then the loan is secured by the payoff of the eventual lawsuit. And when you're Tom Girardi and you won the Aaron Brockovich deal at 33 million or 333 million, they see you suing PG&E left and right. You're suing Merck. You're suing Lockheed. You're suing Boeing. They see that you're a big badass and that you usually win. And if not win, then you at least settle for a shitload of money. Then they're it's like having good credit, right? They see, mm-hmm. okay. Plus, they have whole underwriting departments that go through and look at your current list of cases. And then they have people who analyze, okay, this is a good case. This is a bad case, whatever. So he went out and got a loan from this first lender at CAL. And they said, okay, send us a list of your current cases. It's 900 cases, whatever. And they say, that's sufficient. For that much money, we'll give you $5 million. What he then does is goes to company B and says, here's a list of my 900 cases. Can you give me a $5 million loan? Well, that's like having a second mortgage on your house. Well, then he does it a Mm -hmm. third time, then a fourth time, then a fifth time. So also by... The very first loan, he's going to sign a promissory note. And in that promissory note, it says, I swear I will not pledge these cases to anybody but the company that's on the other side of the promissory note. So initially, when he takes it to company B, he's already breaching his first promissory note. Mm -hmm. Guess what? Company B's promissory note has that in it, too. So by signing it, he's already in breach because those things are previously. And I'm sure there's probably a representation in there that says, I represent that these haven't been pledged to anybody else yet. So he's sitting there mortgaging these future payouts five times not to mention so then he when the bill comes due so a settlement comes in from an uh another party like the opposite the opposing party in a case he's not just supposed to pay off pay that off one time he's got to pay that off five times so for every one dollar he owes now five dollars and that's also now money that's not going to go to clients so they're also this litigation funding company it's not going to give him any more money. It's like a credit card. If you have your credit card right. maxed out until you pay it off, they're not going to extend your credit line. So he was having to pay them off in order to get more loans. So he was, I think that's when he started using client settlement money to then pay the loans off to get more loans or so that the lenders wouldn't get pissed at each other. What I think happened, the big, so what do we think of how this all came crumbling down was that COVID happened. The courts are closed. Mm. You can't go to court. You can't keep yeah. getting you can't keep getting jury verdicts for millions and millions of dollars. You maybe can still get some settlements. The communications are down. It takes a long time. So when as a any Ponzi scheme is dependent on a flow of new money. So that flow of new settlement money, he would go pay the Rui Gomez's back or he could go pay, you know, the victims of the Lion Air crash back. Well, there was no flow of new money. Plus, he couldn't pay the lender off to then get another loan to pay more people that he owed. So then 
they start to default and get pissed at him. Well, then they all start talking to each other and going, well, I have those rights to those cases. Well, I thought I had, you know, who's on first. So then they all figure it out. So then the first initial lender sues him. Then whenever uh, there's been, I want to say 14 or 15 bar complaints from opposing counsel in cases where he owed them fees. Well, he was taking it and paying who somebody else. You know, when you start owing that much around, it's all just, and it's this huge mix of money. How do you even keep up with it? And they, I think the LA Times article talks about how he was the he was the one that was in charge of the money and he wouldn't let anybody else look at the books. Well, in the end, um, someone from the bankruptcy court who's been assigned to like kind of make sense of everything, she said when she went into Girardi Keys, now that ever you know it's mm-hmm. they're done Boarded up yeah that there's just rooms with files stacked you know as high as as she is that there's checks that have been dated years ago mm-hmm. checks to people that don't even work there Mm-mm. it's just a complete shit show and so i'm sure he had no idea how to even keep on top of it or what he was doing and then it's it we'll get into the lawsuits and the bankruptcy in part two but it is a what we've seen so far is like the tip, tip, tip of the iceberg, and it goes mm-hmm. way deeper. Of uh, and the God bless the t- bankruptcy trustees that are having to deal with all this because it's a yeah. huge mess of just yarn. I mean, it's a huge ball of yarn that they're having to just suss out what's who's owed yep. what in what order, and then where the money went. I mean, you have to. They're going to ask for an accounting of where all this money went. So dollars are fungible, so it's really hard to trace. So they're going to have to do a lot of tracing back of where the assets went but so far i think that's kind of what happened was that he was very precariously teetering on not paying clients because he was using that money to pay the lenders or borrowing from one lender to pay back the other lender but then when an influx of a settlement would come through he could settle everything up but i mean clearly with the Rui gomez's too they this was pre-covid a lot of this stuff actually happened mm-hmm. pre-covid and i think it just really the shit hit the fan they started suing him in 2019 and then it really it went totally haywire after that. And Erica mentions in one of the episodes that I think uh, they're in Tahoe mm-hmm. and Garcelle says, you know, have you talked to Tom? And she's like, yeah, he's at the, he's at the firm, you know, that's just his life. And mm-hmm. she says, Oh, how's he doing? And she's like, well, you know, like all lawyers, they're just hoping that this ends soon because everybody's struggling. And so, I mean, she knows mm-hmm. She knows things that, were not great. She said it, yeah. they, they're all just going to go push, and she makes like an explosion sound. It's really eerie mm-hmm. uh, that she talks about mm-hmm. him just one or two episodes before the divorce is announced. But it's and I think she knew that that was coming. for sure. Yeah. I mean, she said she planned yeah. for 30 days. So, yeah, it mm-hmm. was a web of deceit bound to disastrously unravel exactly what the lender yep. said. And that's what's happened here. And now we'll the next episode will cover the unraveling and all we will the dirty deets of the lawsuit. And I bet there's stuff that comes out before we even record that that we're gonna have to add in because she just yesterday finally said I'll testify, mm-hmm. which she had not agreed to. I'm yet, googling so. every single day. I I do like pre <laughs> posted in the last 24 hours or posted in the last week to mm-hmm. make sure, just like I'm doing with all of our free Britney stuff. Yes, that's going to be our our next minisode is um, an update on that, which, woo, we got a lot to cover. We got a lot to talk about. A lot of good stuff, yeah. Well, I think we covered what we think about this one. Yes, I think so. We're going to go to part two. Probably get into what we think as far as how much Erica knew in the second one. And what evidence we have to support that. Yeah, yeah. 
We love providing Sinisterhood to you at no cost, so if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation, creating this show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show. As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like ad-free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Ruling the Airwaves tier, a special shout-out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode, which this month is Free Britney and last month was an update on Love Has Won, and patron-exclusive video and audio content, including the Am I the Asshole relationship segments, Judge Christie, where she lays down the law, and True Crime Headlines, where we cover something new in true crime. We also started Dear Sinister. That's right. It's yes. a advice. Write in with your advice and we'll give you some advice. You also now have the fun perk of access to our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime, share personal ghost stories, or just post adorable pictures of your pets. We'll also be hopping on occasionally and hosting monthly Q&As where you can ask us all your burning questions. And the next one is Wednesday the day of when, this, when this will come out. So hear this. <laughs> And then immediately, immediately go register or sign up for Patreon if you need to, so you can uh, watch the Q and A. And if you're listening to this anytime after June 30th at 8 p.m. Central Time, never fear. You can go on to Patreon. You can watch all of our previous Q and As, which will be three of them on Crowdcast, and we're going to have another one in July. So mm-hmm. you can catch the next one, but you can still catch up on what you missed on the last one. And we haven't done it yet, but I'm going to tell you, killer, hilarious. They're very fantastic. Fun. They're very fun. super fun. Yes. For our patrons not in the U.S., you now have the option to pay in pounds or euros, saving you the cost of the conversion fee. Annual memberships for all tiers are also now available. Those that select this option will be rewarded with a free month of membership. For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit SinisterHood.com and click Patreon on the top banner. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. We just had uh, a tag on the Patreon Facebook group today uh, in our lovely uh, cartoon shirt, with our baseball oh. tee with our face. And if you would like to get some cool Sinisterhood swag like T-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos, visit Sinisterhood.com and click on shop in the top banner with our all new store launching in the next few weeks or so. <laughs> yes, we are waiting on several very cool designs. It is so, uh, I'm so it's excited. well worth the wait. It's going to be really so awesome. Excited. Well, the best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. It means so much to us and really helps podcasts like us get more exposure. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod and like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. Christy, where are you at on the computer? I'm on Twitter at Christy or GTFO and on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace. Heather? I'm on Twitter at MCK versus the world and following all my favorite housewives now on Instagram yeah. at Heather versus the world. I gotta go follow all mine on Instagram. Yep, mm-hmm. I gotta do that. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Here are your special Patreon shoutouts. Stacey Alciani. Michael Turknet. Carrie Ann Brown. Mary Puakanen. Annika Zapp-Willis. Jacqueline Brandeber. Shai Benisti. Mona Piercy. Catherine Glovis. Aaron. Jennifer Shiriano. Chrissy Dixon. Ann Alley. Kristen Miller. Lena Johnson. Caitlin Barrington. Carly Irvine. Doreen Caston. Lindsay. Steph. 
Hope Keenan. M. Scholes, thank M. you. Scholes, we, we love, love you. you. Oh, jinx. <laughs> Kristen Burke. Lee Manasco Pollen. Jasmine Greer. Amber Davidson. Taylor Price. Ashley. Cameron Carruthers. Haley. Katie Andrews. Lexi King. Kate Robinson. Beth Greenway. Fallon Gold. Athena Barrett. Corey Viser. Jordan Cobb. Aditi Prubacher. Jennifer Sanders. Taylor Ramsey. C.J. Young. Sam Hathaway. Alyssa Pilaro. Rebecca Miller. Brody Bain. Jesse Chadwick. Samantha Williams. Caitlin Brown. Dorothy Davila. Rachel Polk. And Kylie O'Connor. Thank you so much for supporting the show. We sincerely appreciate it. We couldn't do this without you guys. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. Bah-ha-ha-ha.